Food and Faith Podcast would like to thank our sponsor, Memphis Theological Seminary. Memphis Theological Seminary is currently accepting applications to join the next cohort of the Doctor of Ministry in Land, Food, and Faith Formation. This dynamic and innovative low-residency program is open to students who are passionate about the intersections of ministry with agricultural practices, food justice, care for the land, and the role of faith communities in both rural and urban settings. Students in this program explore the theological and ethical dimensions of land and its use, the role of food in our lives, and the ways faith communities both shape and are shaped by their relationship with land and food. This program will provide theological resources and practical models for the practice of ministry in faith communities, which seek to relate more intentionally to the care of land, food, and all living creatures. The first one-week residency for the new cohort takes place in June 2022, and applications are currently being accepted until April 30th. For more information and to apply, visit memphisseminary.edu. Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek, and today my guests are Jake Marquez and Marin Morgan. Jake and Marin host the Death in the Garden podcast, whose producer James Connolly was on the show a few months back, and they're currently making a film of the same name. Jake is a filmmaker and podcaster who is interested in the intersection of food systems, health, and so-called solutions to climate change. He's explored the worlds of veganism, carnivory, and is combining his experiences and research into the film Death in the Garden. Marin is a writer, filmmaker, podcaster dedicated to understanding the root causes of the problems in our world while advocating for human and ecological rights and age contraction. Like Jake, she is skeptical of the so-called solutions to climate change and tries to challenge the meta-narratives that play within our culture to reach a framework of thinking that can resolve our converging crises. These two are a really awesome couple that I've gotten to know a bit in the last few months, and I'm excited for you all to hear this interview. Before we start, just want to remind you all that you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast, and any little bit helps. All right, here's my interview with Baron and Jake. Uh, so Jake and Marin, both welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you guys could be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. We're Thank super you. excited to be here, man. Thanks for having us. We start with this question. Uh, we always start with this question of what is your geography? What are the the places, the people, the food, culture, music, whatever that have shaped you to be the people that you are? And uh, you you two decide between the two of you who wants to answer that first. Oh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, we actually talk about this a lot because we're both from Salt Lake City. And Salt Lake City and where it sits uh, geographically and culturally, uh, I think has been very informative on both of our worldviews. And maybe in our youths, it was probably much more of a thing that we really resented. But I Mm. think we've both been able to find through that kind of resentment, which I can get into, a sense of almost gratitude for because it's informed the way we the way we see the world and the way we have intentions for the world. So Salt Lake City, you know, is in this incredibly, well, what used to be an incredibly beautiful valley. You know, you have the Wasatch Mountains, which are miraculously beautiful and get amazing snow and used to have this incredible watershed. And in the center of this valley, you now have this, this growing, this massively growing city that historically has been very religious. So you have this kind of religious tension between a city that is growing and becoming more modern and urban, and the the tension between those two things got stronger and stronger, I think, as we grew up. And, you know, you have Salt Lake, which is becoming a very liberal city, and there used to be kind of this very much punk rock attitude towards the whole situation of kind of more conservative leaning uh, type thinking. And then, you know, surrounding all of Salt Lake City is incredible nature. You have all these national parks, you have what used to be grasslands. Kind of growing up, I think I began to appreciate both of those sides. I began to appreciate the the values and ethics that came from the more conservative culture, but also really uh, appreciated the fact that it at the same time taught me to be open-minded or or think outside of the box. And those two converging things mixed with seeing the nature around me become 
degraded even more than when I was born, you know, less snow, less water, um, and then researching what this place used to be in relation to the grasslands and the elk and the bison and the deer and want and having a strong desire to do the best I can to not run away from all these things, but to integrate myself in it and owe an allegiance to it and want to make it better and educate people and and hopefully show the potential of what this place could be. Oh, yeah. So much to say. Um, yeah, for me, uh, you know, we, we both grew up Catholic in a very, very Mormon part of the world. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, as Jake was saying, is like there's a bit of a resentment that you, you grow up with when you are um, part of like a minority religious group in, in a in a big, bigger city and a growing city all the time. You know, and it, for me, it was always this thing of like I felt that um, I, I became intolerant of Mormons because I felt like they were intolerant of me. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, as you get older, you start to realize like, oh, I'm being as intolerant as everybody else, you know, but it, you, it feels very righteous and justified when you're young and you're not invited to birthday parties because you're Catholic. And, you know, th- you know, people make fun of you for wearing a cross. And after, you know, I got I, I'll never forget being in like second grade coming um, to school with my beautiful new cross necklace that I just got after doing communion and being made fun of for it. And, and kids getting mad at me because they felt like it was very um, antithetical to their religion. And so, yeah, so there was this sort of tension. But um, as I've gotten older, I have grown to appreciate more um, what, how that sort of diversity of belief system kind of helps you move through the world with a little bit more grace, I guess, like understanding that it's like, okay, everybody has their own perspective and their own beliefs about the world and that I can, I can exist in this space and we can actually all respect each other. And the best way for me to do that is to embody that respect as well. Mm. You know, and then um, once I once I got out of high school and stuff, it's like I, I started to realize more like how I was play. I was feeding into that division as well. But so that was very, very informative. But I think that the thing that has been the most informative for me was watching what was once a pretty open space that wasn't so developed um, and that had a bit of a culture to it sort of devolve into like a strip mall, which is what what this valley has kind of turned into, which is really, really hard. And it's uh, in a lot of ways, it's good for us to be living here because it's making me see like and it's helping me experience that loss and that grief that I think is so necessary for Mm -hmm. us to know what world we actually want to embody, because I, I don't like driving around and seeing the same strip mall in the same suburbs and uh, again and again and again and again. And it makes me it, it's really heartbreaking for me, um, especially mm-hmm. when the backdrop is like these incredible mountains, as Jake was saying, um, that, you know, now there's hardly any snow. You can't really ski on it. There's no you don't see deer anymore. There are fewer birds like, uh, you know, I, I don't even know the last time I saw a moose, you know, but I remember these things when I was a kid. I remember mm-hmm. like you know, five feet of snow on Halloween morning. And I remember seeing <laughs> moose every time I went hiking and, and it's just not like that anymore. Hmm. Um, and so for me, that's, that's been very informative in what, what I'm doing with my life is just trying to understand like how we got here um, and trying to heal my relationship with this valley, you know, also with the understanding that like my ancestors aren't from here and that my ancestors like, you know, I was just born here, but my ancestors had to displace people in order to to live here. And I recently I've been taking that very seriously, especially um, sorry if I'm getting a little tangential, no, but um, go for it. Uh, I, I recently found out that my ancestry is from like Scandinavia and Jake and I went to Sweden uh, a few months ago and there was like this weird sense of like coming home in a weird way. Mm-hmm. I was like, I, I, I could feel that my ancestors had walked on those lands, you know, mm-hmm. and and there was something very visceral and, and impactful about that. Whereas like my the, my family, I think I'm pretty sure like it's like second generation in, in, in the West. Um, and so it's, it, there's a bit of a dislocation, um, Mm. that I've been feeling and I've been trying to figure out like where, where I actually belong and how to, how to make sense of belonging in general. And it's been a bit challenging in Utah. I think that there is a lot to do with food that we that I'd love to get into later where, you know, eating Swedish food. I was like, oh my God, like, (laughs) this this feels like, (laughs) this feels feels like home. Yeah. yeah, and it, it's like the way that it nourished my body was just unlike anything I'd ever experienced before, too. Mm. Um, 
but anyway, yeah, there's a, there's so many so many different feelings about Salt Lake. This is, that's a really good question. <laughs> yeah. Well, and thank you for the depth of the answers. Uh, both of you have kind of talked about uh, a, a sense of grief. Um, of, of kind of being able to watch over the course of a lifetime, and you, you two aren't very old, but over the course of a lifetime of watching an environment degrade, of mm. watching um, of watching climate change in real time, of watching uh, disruption of nature in real time, um, and, and, and appreciating that like that should be, for us as as humans that should be a source of grief mm -hmm. that should be something that that hurts our hearts um and 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 as you said jake not 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 it's not just that we grieve it but that it animates us to uh to do different kinds of work and and figure out ways to uh be in the world talk to our audience we've we had uh we had james uh connelly on the show um a few months ago uh but talk to us about death in the garden and tell us a little bit about how that got started what was the thinking when you got that off the ground it sounds like a lot of what shaped you from salt lake city is is probably what led into wanting to wanting to do death in the garden so i mean death in the garden you know came together in a weird you know trippy non-linear way but i guess as we're talking the way i i mean that i can explain that it came about is you know i grew up uh being a very passionate snowboarder in the wasatch mountains you know and i i loved being in the mountains there was a sense of especially when i was younger there was so much snow and you get up into these high mountain peaks and you're just paying attention to the snow you know like you just you feel the mountain and it's talking and i you know used to live up in park city which is one of those classic ski resort towns and i was just like a total dirtbag ski bum spent every dime i had just to be on the mountain every day <laughs> Day, you know what I meant? It was like my my daily devotional practice that I would do to nature. Like I'm here. Like how cold is it? What's the weather like? How's the snow gonna be? And over the years, the conditions just got worse and worse and worse. And like any young person, we're all aware that climate change, blah 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 blah. But for me, that pain of like watching something that I love for so much slowly become diminished consistently over time, uh, really kind of alchemized into an internal like, like anger and grief and sadness. But through processing those feelings, it started to really kind of turn into the attention like, well, what can I do? What can I do? And you start following all these avenues that most young people follow, which is all the all the answers were given to climate change. You know, you start playing with all these things. And a big thing that came across my my um, plate was veganism. You know, I was at the time kind of getting involved with spiritual communities and yoga and meditation and, and looking to really, you know, connect with myself and, and continue connecting with nature. But then I was handed this idea of veganism, which it promises better health, better health for the environment, animal ethics, a higher sense of spirituality and connection. It promises all these things. And so for me at the time, it seemed like a really good idea to begin going down a vegan journey as to that was my action taking for the ales of the world. And I went really deep down that path. You know, it ended up with me living in Australia in a vegan community mm. of, of a number of young people all getting together and growing our own food and living in tents and really living the vegan, the vegan lifestyle. And eventually my health failed. And I noticed a lot of people around me, their health was failing as well. Um, I don't think there's one diet for everybody, obviously. Um, but when my health failed and I, and I reintroduced animal foods back into my diet and it was undeniable that I felt better, I'm then left with this conundrum with, well, shit, like, how do I live my life? Like, that that provided all the things I wanted to my life to represent. Mm -hmm. You know, what do I do? What do I do? And so then I had to go on a, an even longer journey to answer those questions. Like, how do I respect animals, love life? How do I take care of my body? How do I take care of my environment? And how does my daily eating habits make me feel connected? to life in the world and a sense of God and spirituality. How do I find those things? And so I get, for me, that's how Death in the Garden was born. And I didn't know that I would eventually make a documentary, but I just went on a massive, you know, research project and experimentation project. And for me, the thing that kept coming up so much was like, okay, I can accept that animals on landscapes is actually pretty good for landscapes. I can accept that, you know, I can accept a lot of things that became truths to me, but the hardest part was, damn, 
things are going to die for me to live. And I thought I escaped that. I thought I escaped that. Mm. But I didn't shy away from that. I really kind of focused on that, on the death part. Like, death is, that's like the ultimate truth in life, you know? Like, everything dies. Yeah. And so I knew I would not be comfortable living unless I really reconciled that. And so through that exploration of life and the other side of that coin, death, how can we accept that just truth that is not going anywhere no matter how hard humans try? And through that exploration and that uh, acceptance, I feel like this whole world and this whole experience and potential for life has opened up to me. And so through Death in the Garden, the documentary, we're hoping to kind of take people on that journey. And and if that is a valuable thing to talk about with people, we hope it has a meaningful change in the world, potentially. Yeah. Um, recently, I, I saw this quote that um, I feel like has pretty much sort of summed up a lot of what I feel is uh, our, our, our purpose with Death in the Garden, which is like, and, and I can't remember who actually, who was the person who originally said it, so your audience will have to forgive me. <laughs> um, I saw it on Twitter. Um, but, uh, it was that uh, environmentalism without cl- class struggle is just gardening. And then beneath mm. it, it said environmentalism without anti-imperialism is just eco-fascism. And I feel like that's what our project is trying to do is um, trying to show the the connections between all of the problems that we are facing today with the um, how how climate change and all of the ecocidal processes that are happening due to our civilization are impacting the web of life and you know of course that includes um, communities all over the world who have lived sustainably and who are now like getting the brunt of the burden of climate change through a lot of like colonial means um, and so I suppose for me, I was always a really melancholy kid. I was always really, I really had a sense that there was something deeply wrong with the way that we were doing things as a, mm. as a species. And of course, that started to um, concretize into more, as we have been doing this project, that it's more really this process that one culture is implementing on all of the other cultures. But so I remember, so I was always very sensitive. Um, and when I was 18, I decided to do a humanitarian trip and, uh, we went to Cambodia and we were originally supposed to go to Vietnam, but then last minute we went to Cambodia instead. Um, and we went to Tulsling and the killing fields, which were, uh, where, uh, the, a lot of the, the murders and massacres of the genocide, uh, done by the Khmer Rouge, um, in the 1970s happened, um, by Pol Pot. Um, and I remember when I was there, I just was weeping all day long. I just, I could not stop crying because, you know, there's just, there's just bones everywhere. You know, they're coming up out of the ground. Every time the rain comes, more bones come out of these mass graves mm. and there's just piles of human skulls. And, you know, it was like very, it, 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 it was really alarming. Um, it, it also in the sense that I, I felt, I felt very deceived by my education because I had never heard of this genocide. Um, in my in, in schooling. And so I started to just it, it deepened this sense of like, hmm, something there's there are things that are being hidden from me as an individual. And I looked around me and all the people that I was with who were doing this humanitarian trip didn't seem to really care as much. They were just taking pictures and kind of like chatting. And I just remember feeling like kind of, I don't know, just taken aback by that being like, wow, I'm the only one here who's absolutely like fucked up. Um, yeah. But then when I came home, oh, well, I'm sorry, I'll just add uh, another thing that I noticed in Cambodia. It was the first time I'd been to like the global south and I saw um, that the divisions between rich and poor were really stark but they reminded me of, of the United States. I was like, this isn't any different than what I see at home. The The homelessness in Salt Lake City, you know, is the same, it's the same kind of dynamic. And I just thought that was really strange. I was like, this is really weird. Um, you know, you, 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 when you're going out of the your country for the first time, you sort of expect everything to be so different. But when you see these little similarities, you realize like, hmm, there's like, there's some darkness in the whole world that I have been sort of sheltered from. But when I came home, uh, it was very clear and very apparent that most people did not care to hear about my experience, especially, especially this experience of being so upset and devastated by what I saw in those places. Um, And I feel like after that, then it was like shortly, it was shortly after that, that um, Trump got elected. And I sort of felt like the wind got knocked out of me. 
um, like I had all of this passion and this drive. And I feel like I just kept getting kind of knocked down and feeling incredibly powerless and helpless. And then when Trump got elected, I was just like, I remember going to like the Women's March and being like, what are we doing? Like, <laughs> does, does anyone actually care? And just feeling so jaded and defeated. Um, and, and and so I spent the majority of Trump's presidency just really angry and really like kind of drinking a lot and lashing out at the people around me um, rather than sort of funneling that energy into something productive because I was in college and I was just trying to get through college. I was just trying to yeah. finish. Um, yeah. And um, so I had a lot of energy inside me that I just feel like wasn't getting mirrored by the people in my life. Um and so it was easier to party. Um, but then uh, I, when I met Jake, it was like all of a sudden I was with somebody who saw that anger and that that drive in me and was like, we can turn this into something. We can alchemize this into something productive. Mm -hmm. This doesn't have to be just like this burden on me anymore. It can be something that can flourish into something that can hopefully make the world a better place. And so, you know, I think for me, that's um, when I started noticing that um, not only did the vegan narrative have this sort of colonial bent to it um, through uh, like Bill Gates pushing um, pushing against indigenous sovereignty in Africa uh, through uh, the um, Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa. Um, I started seeing, you know, here you start hearing about, oh, electric vehicles. Like, what does it require to make those? And you start hearing about lithium mines displacing indigenous people all over the world and and here in the United States and c cobalt mines, child slaves in the Congo being forced to, uh, you know, be maimed in these cobalt mines and just, you know, just people around the world being treated like commodities in the process of treating the living earth like a commodity. And I, we started realizing it's like, hmm, like, what do these stories have in common? And we started to realize like they all have the same story of conquest that we've been enacting for thousands of years, um, which seems to have begun at the dawn of agriculture. Um, but it's a little bit it's a little bit tricky to like fully make that claim. But we, we can start to see, you know, when civilization started developing, then you start having to conquer your neighbors to bring in resources back into the city center. Um, and so really, Death in the Garden has been a quest for us to understand, like, how do we get here? And why are all of the so-called solutions to climate change enacting the exact same story that got us into this position? And so how might we be able to, like, call attention to that? I mean, we can't really necessarily provide, like, a, you know, pretty beautiful solution that has, like, a nice bow wrapped on it. But how can we at least call attention to it so people aren't being deceived by, you know, the World Trade Organization and Davos and all of these billionaires that are running the plutocracy that is you know, like more or less destroying everything that we love and hold dear, like we're out because of the way that this narrative is being framed, we're outsourcing all of our responsibility onto those people. And so we just really want to call attention to that and be like, hey, actually, we all can take responsibility for our role in all of this. And we can make a life that's more beautiful for ourselves from that place of awareness and like historical context and local contexts. And so that's really what our goal is with this project. Any audience for this, any any thinking audience for this wouldn't think that there's going to be a neat solution to what you're talking about which is an issue that has existed with humanity since it's since the dawn of civilization but but there is there is a what i would say um uh is a a blissful ignorance mm. of of a lot of these um circumstances and a lot of these things you know the the assumption that the gates foundation is doing all the good in the world right mm -hmm. and and the the assumption that um well these are just these are just the things that we need to do to to keep our society moving forward right mm -hmm. these are this is the price of progress um and and being able to put those things under a microscope ask questions about them think about the fact that there could be alternatives i think all of that is a worthwhile endeavor you know even without neat solutions and neat solutions would be would be trite anyway yeah. the the piece about veganism here um and and i've had uh we've i've had on the show i've uh i've had guests on who are vegans um and had a lot of good conversations about about veganism and 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 at the heart of it is people who 
care deeply about the world and have chosen a path that they think is going to help the world and make it better. And on, and I appreciate that where I've struggled. And I think where, where you all have struggled and, and other folks that we've, you know, I think that we have kind of overlapping circles of conversations about the fact that like, there is this piece where we are not accepting death as a mm-hmm. part of the equation that we're not accepting that, um, something has to die for me to eat. Um, And that something could be an animal, that something could be a plant, that something could also be another animal that was displaced so that the plants could be grown, you know, and and that, that gets lost. Um, And I, I guess as, as you two have, have wrestled with this question about death, which is like for, for so, for some people, like, just the word it's morbid and it's heavy and why do we have to talk about death but i but my sense and in listening to you both now and and in in work that you've done your emphasis on death doesn't actually leave you in kind of a hopeless despairing space there you're you're acknowledging death kind of gets you to a place that is hopeful and i'm i'm kind of interested in in digging down into that a little bit more like how has facing death in some ways facing death head on made you get to a place where you can start thinking about solutions getting you to a place mm-hmm. where you can start thinking about more hopeful ways of being what a great question and i and i want to comment too I, i'm glad you brought it up that like i i mean I, I'm, I'm still a vegan at heart, right? Like the intentions that made me vegan, I, those are the most beautiful intentions ever. And my only gripe comes when those things get formed into a rigid ideology that mm-hmm. isn't able to accept new perspectives and new things. Like you can still have those intentions and in, in, in eat animals, you know what I mean? Yep. Um, but to answer that question, oh, it's, a, it's a good question. And that's, that's the heart of it because... There was like, there's, I forget who the philosopher was, but he says, accept death and therefore anything is possible. I think it was Albert Camus. Albert Camus, yeah. And he's another one where it's like, denying death is like, you have your back to this beautiful vista and you're like facing a wall. But if you mm. accept death, you can turn around and there's this beautiful view. Mm. You know, and I've had to think about this exact question you're asking, which is, and, it, and it's led me to think, well, okay, what does death represent to our culture? What does it represent to us? And it represents the ultimate uncontrollability of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, nature is uncontrollable. The living universe, all of the universe is uncontrollable. And there is an archetype in, in modern civilization of the character who tries to control death. It's Darth Vader. It's, you know, Voldemort. Voldemort. It's the people who try to deny it and are the ultimate mm-hmm. causes of suffering. And so there's this, there's this latent archetype that nobody's really analyzing and so for me it's it goes to the core of of modern civilization is you know people might laugh and be like oh the ultimate goal of modern civilization isn't to deny death and that's why i say death represents the controllability of nature the the foundation of the scientific revolution and the renaissance was under the premise that if we begin to pay attention and do scientific experiments one day our control over nature through understanding will be so great that we will live forever and we will transcend. And then there's another component part of the death part that is like the same reason why we're afraid to look at our own poop. It's the decay, it's the gross, it's the animality part of ourselves. And within the vegan community, there's a meme of, well, this is a purer, higher vibration type uh, purity complex aspect to veganism. So there's like the denial of death, which is the uncontrollability of life and the absolute disgust with the fact that we're animals and that we are physical beings and that we're nothing, we're not in, you know, angelic beings. We are these little, you know, like muddy creatures that are part of the soil and the earth and all the forces that any other animal is part of. And it is this and I think we're one of the only species who has a problem with that. You know, we have a problem <laughs> with the fact that we're here and that we're going to go and that things die. So for me, by accepting death, I can accept that I am going to die, but that I am 
part of an uncontrollable process that is beautiful and, and miraculous. And the and the sooner our culture realizes that death is real, it's not going anywhere, and that nature is inevitably uncontrollable, and that as great as science and technology is, it's never going to control nature. That's a fool's errand. And in that fool's errand, we are destroying the world and ourselves and making a real a real wasteland of a paradise. And if that's why it's death in the garden. If you want the garden, if you want this paradise, you got to accept the uncontrollability of it and the death part. Yeah. 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 I think that um, death represents connection with what's real because that's that's the one thing that is truly real right like mm -hmm. it's real for all of us we can all agree that that is something that we're going to have to experience whether it's the death of our loved ones or the environment around us or the creatures that we have to eat whether they're plant or animal that's something that unifies all of us um and when you really take responsibility for what that means it really does open up well i mean for one thing I mean, and this is obviously so dependent on a person's individual belief system, but um, it, through my experiences, like, I don't necessarily believe that death is like utter annihilation. I, I believe more that, you know, death is part of a grander process that we just don't understand. We just don't have the language to fully, to fully comprehend it, you know, whether it's, you know, the fact that you kill an animal and that life that it had is given to you or, and to the community, you know, whether, you know, if you leave its organs out and all of the creepy crawly bugs come and get it or bears come and eat it or like predators come and eat it. And then you and your community eat the rest, eat the meat, you know, that that is more life, you know, and more life is supported through the death that's in our food. And, and that's what life is, right? Like life is life eating life again and again and again all the time, constantly. The, the thing about it, too, is that I look around me in, in this city, in this very suburban area that we live in, and there's not really any like very noticeable death, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also not a lot of life. There's a lot of humans, but mm. there's not a lot of life. There's not a lot of like actual like biodiversity. There's like grass and uh, some trees that were planted and a lot of humans and maybe the occasional songbird, right? Mm -hmm. When you go to a farm, though, where the farmers are rege like regenerative farmers who are so involved with the life death life cycle, mm. there's life in all forms all around you at all times. And there's also a lot of death. And that's what all of these farmers say is it's like, well, if you want to live around, around life, you have to be willing to live around death. <laughs> and I think that like, for me, the sanitized um, death avoidant world that we have built for ourselves, to me makes me hopeless. Like I, I don't, I, I feel very discombobulated in, in a world where there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of life um, other than like a monoculture of humans. And, and also when I say that, I, I don't want anyone to get me wrong. Um, like I love humans and I'm, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who's like all humans are diseased and they just need to die. Like I actually really fully disagree with that. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think that he, we are out of balance um, and that we could, we, we could all like work toward living in a way where, where we're creating more life and we're living in balance and the only way that i think we can do that is if we start contending with this one true thing that is we're gonna all die and that death is required for us to live and you know someone we interviewed said we can either be a part of the death that's killing everything or we can really just take responsibility for the death required for us to live and create more life through that mm. um because i and i would rather choose that i would rather i would i would yeah. rather live off of one animal for like a whole year, then participate in this global industrial food system that, you know, is pumping carbon in the atmosphere. But, you know, that's one that's one metric of like the grander problem of it. You know, you think about um, how banana plantations are destroying rainforests or palm plantations or, you know, I, I, I could list off like a thousand different ways in mm -hmm. which this global food system is really, really degradatious to the land and to communities ability to be sovereign. But Ultimately, um, I have a lot of faith in the knowledge that if I can if I can confront death, that means that I can actually take responsibility for my life. And I've been fortunate enough through this journey to be able to confront death in a very personal, intimate way. And I, I mean, one thing that I would like to share, um, if it's all right with your audience, you know, that's one thing that I don't see it here. A lot of people talking about is um, the bottleneck of the U USDA system is actually probably the biggest barrier for this movement to move forward and to mm. create a healthier land, because right now, 
you know, there's there depending on your eco region, there's like a handful of people that are responsible for all of the death. And that's really imbalanced. That that can't be psychologically or energetically or spiritually good mm. for that that one person. But it also yeah. takes away a lot of the experience of um of eating for everybody else. Um and so, you know, if if someone feels mobilized and feels energized about wanting to make a more just food system, the USDA system needs to be reformed like immediately. Um and we all need to be able to have access to taking responsibility for the death of animals. Um, That's really, that's really big and really important. You know, there's only a handful of USDA slaughter facilities in the country. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're displacing a lot of the death that we could take responsibility for and have like a very spiritual connection with it. Because death is, when you take the life of another creature and you feel the exchange, that's a really beautiful experience, actually. There's nothing, there's no cruelty in it. Um, but there is cruelty in making one person kill a thousand cows a day, you know, yeah. like in, in on so many levels. Um, but yeah, obviously it's very complex. But uh, this this project has brought up so many feelings for us, and so many just exposed so much of how how we want to try to make the world a better place, and why it matters so much that people connect with this because you don't know you don't know what it feels like, you you don't know that an animal should die on the the land that it was raised on until you kill it yourself and then you then you think about how most animals in this uh industrial food system aren't dying like that you start to realize it's not the death that's wrong it's the fact that all animals aren't dying or surrounded by their community where their blood is going back into the soil that they Mm -hmm. created and you know there's such a beautiful exchange of life and death in that and we lose it when we industrialize the food system yeah thank you for that um my friend karen band who is been on the show a couple times um is uh she raises pigs and talks about the fact that you know her the the pigs that she raises uh that she raises they have one bad day Mm -hmm. that's that's her her expression is that her pigs have one bad day and 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 for her that that moment of of looking the animal in the eye at the end like it's a it's a it's a spiritual moment, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's one of the things that, uh, um, and particularly for for the audience of this show, you know, as people of faith, we have so many resources to talk about death, and we're often the ones who don't do the work and overly spiritualize things mm-hmm. instead of talking about sort of the animality of of being human, and and dealing with death and dealing with death as as a a connector to other living things and a part of a cycle and 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 the regeneration of new life that comes from death like we have so many theological resources for that and we don't <laughs> yeah. and we don't and we don't and we don't use them um and 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 I and again I think I think what you've both mentioned is this we have a society that distances ourselves not just from death but from anything that makes us uh that shows any sort of mortality and any sort of like fleshiness to us um we 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 cover those things up and reconnecting with the facts that we are animals and that we're part of nature i think is a part of this equation too You know, I feel like uh, we could talk about these big systems and like this, this, you know, I, we, I think philosophize about death for a while. Um, but I want to bring it to kind of a, a, a smaller, more intimate place because I want to, I want to, uh, you know, we're, I, my uh, co-host Anna and I are working on this book. And so I want to start talking a little bit more about um, what we're doing sort of in a more local, what we're doing in a more local way. So I want to ask you both first this question of, can you describe the kitchens that you grew up with? Like what, how would you describe the kitchens and the homes that you, in which you grew up? Mm, good question. Well, for me, my father's from Mexico. So I grew up uh, a lot of, with a lot of home cooking from my father and my mother as well. But my father was particularly uh, creative in the kitchen. Uh, I think like a lot of uh, Mexican chefs, they get really good at like, what's just in the house, what's already here, what's available. And can we remix everything? Let's take spices, let's experiment, let's make something really tasty. Um, and so I grew up with a lot of that, which I'm very grateful for, because now I, I usually, it's fun for me, like I'll just go in the pantry and it's like, okay, we got like 
fish sauce and peanut butter <laughs> and just random shit, you know? And then sometimes, some, not always, sometimes I come up with something that's really tasty. And so for me, I... Uh, I guess I grew up around food being a, a creative, a potentially like almost art form subconsciously being like, oh, it can be a creative place. You can kind of get lost in it, make something tasty. It's excited to make something, you know, fun. Um, but then, that, I mean, after childhood, it was I was like the typical American, you know, a lot of especially once you go to college, it's just a lot of buying food, eating food, you know, uh, that I didn't make or know where it came from. Um, but then as I've gotten older and have been making this project and getting really interested in food and the, and the more I know where my food comes from, the more I feel responsible to making it really well. So even when we were living in, Marion was saying before we recorded, uh, for the whole pandemic, we were by and large living in a van. And when you live in a van, you don't have much space. Our little fridge only has so much room. So you only got a few ingredients, but you learn how to make those few ingredients really well and really intentional, you know? Uh, so <laughs> We would like eat the same thing every day and every night we'd be like, oh, this is so good. It's so, it's so good. We it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's fun to go through moments of like being really like simplifying your food practicality but making it really high quality really nutritious really good to now where we're we're fortunate to live in an apartment so we've been doing a lot of experimenting where there's an asian market and i, I get all the ingredients for uh pho like the vietnamese uh, uh, broth and i made my own homemade pho broth and i got all the ingredients and we had some really good homemade uh pho with like this like locally organic raised pasture raised pork sausages and so for me like cooking and getting more involved in the kitchen is like a devotional practice to me where I'm acknowledging, uh, you know, there's a thing in, in in like the Hindu tradition called bhakti yoga, where when you whenever you do an activity, uh, you're, you're, you're doing all the Hare Krishna mantras because you want to be like singing to the food and like mm. imbuing it with your love. Not that I necessarily do that, but I like that notion of like, when I go to the farmer's market and I talk to the farmer and then I get the food and I bring it home and I'm thinking like, I don't want to mess this up. Let's cook it in the right way. Let's also make it fun and add all these ingredients and having a, like a kitchen and the space to do that has been like really fun for me, uh, you know, especially because Marin usually cleans up. I make the mess and she, <laughs> I'm really good at making a mess. I use every dish in the house. It's so, I, I, I also get accused of, of that uh, yeah no, <laughs> some of those accusations might be true <laughs> but to and then to give that to people too i've been trying to cook for our roommates a lot more where it's like i'm putting so much intention and so much love of like sourcing the food that i know is the best way bringing it home feeding it to the people and knowing that i'm getting as close as i can with my current context of having like a like a really almost religious experience with food every time we eat it and just being like oh my god God, like this, this, this pork came from here and the salmon we got was just so good and right. And it all had good lives. And, and then the people who grew it, their intentions were respected. And then you try, you make something create out of it. It can be a very, it's been a very fulfilling experience mm -hmm. to me recently, very more so than a lot of things cooking food, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, that, that was a really interesting question. Um, is, is it okay if I go like a little personal? Yeah, please. Okay. I, I don't want to be like, like triggering or like TMI or anything, no, but it was just whatever you're comfortable, whatever yeah, you're comfortable with. I, I always feel like it's a good idea for me to just be honest about my experience as a human, because you often, you know, I'm, I'm probably speaking something that someone else has experienced too. Sure. And so it's helpful to maybe hear it like be said. Um, but I, I, as you were talking, it was just making me think about, um, I, I have always actually, I, I'm, I'm recently like healing my relationship with food actually because mm. um the way that i grew up it was my dad um has always been a really fantastic cook he was always he was always making really beautiful things always experimenting um like like jake's dad um he really really loved cooking but um there was always this sort of um thing around weight and stuff mm. in my family um and 
food started to become sort of this more utilitarian thing where uh and and I'm not like trying to like blame my father necessarily but like there was like a lot of different dynamics like my parents then got divorced and at my mom's house we ate a lot more junk food and a lot more ice cream and mac and cheese and stuff that you know like isn't that great for a kid and so um when I was around middle school I mean I I was skinny as a twig and I thought that I was fat and it Mm. was in in high school I I had some pretty bad eating disorders orders. Um, and so it wasn't until um, I started actually uh, rock climbing that I started to then realize that food was like, you know, I, I needed those calories to be able to do what I wanted to do, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like having eating disorders stop, ceased to make sense. Um, but I still had sort of this like disconnect between like um, food being like this like beautiful source of nourishment versus like this thing that I do just because I'm hungry, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like recently uh, it's become much more of that like devotional thing of like like wow like this food like makes me feel so satiated so satiated so great grateful and like all of these different things that I feel like I'm still kind of working out um like healing from my past healing mm-hmm. from the sort of uh the sort of dynamics that I had with food and in reintroducing and, and having a more animal-based diet was really healing for me as a woman especially um because w- women are kind of told, you know, like, okay, well, if you want to, if you want to maintain your figure, you just got to eat like salads twenty four seven, and I-, I found that to be the opposite of true. Actually, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm at a healthier weight than I've ever been because I eat a lot of animal products. Actually, and and that and I think having the reverence for the animals that are giving me their life is it- something that I was also missing from when I was when I was eating like you know bean and cheese quesadillas or whatever mm-hmm. like but being being vegetarian technically I was like actually pretty t- vegetarian when mm-hmm. I was in college um purely out of just actually not knowing how to cook meat and being like afraid of cooking meat and feeling like that wasn't a very like womanly thing to do mm-hmm. um but now you know eating steaks and eating <laughs> like beef and <laughs> eggs and cheese and all of those things like I, I'm, I'm developing such a better relationship with food. And um, I just wanted to say that just in case there's any women listening who are who feel like maybe uncomfortable about wanting to have more animal products in their lives, because, um, you know, it's a it's a very it, it's it's a, a lot of women have a lot of problems with anemia, um, especially. Mm-hmm. And we need it. We need the meat. And, yeah. and it, you know, I just think that. Um, more meat, better on my plate. <laughs> <laughs> but, so I just want to encourage anyone if they're feeling that way. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, thank you for that. And I appreciate your honesty, like that, that, and your vulnerability. That's I, I do think it's good to speak about these things, to be honest about them, and particularly like the ways that you know. I think we can we can we can get a lot of good food traditions passed down in our families. We can also we can also get some baggage from our from our families of origin when it comes to yeah uh, absolutely it's super important that we talk about both sides of it uh you 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 mentioned that you spent a lot of the pandemic cooking uh basically in a van um <laughs> so so like what would i mean other than okay kind of having an appreciation for like what was what was it like cooking in that space what was it like for like, what did that do for the ways that you cook, the ways that you thought about food, the ways that you two interacted in that space? Like, cooking in such a confined space, like, what was particularly, I mean, as 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 it feels like the world's going to shit, like, like <laughs> what, how did, how was that? Um, it was tricky. I feel like we definitely got, you get into a good rhythm at first. It's kind of frustrating. So this is kind of how it looks. So we have like this old 91 Chevy van. We've put two solar panels on the top and we have a battery that kind of charges from that. And then from the battery is charged this fridge. And so a lot of our day is like, okay, is like the fridge still on? Does the fridge have enough juice? <laughs> because we're still trying to be really good about like, we're still getting good quality stuff. Like we will, we'll find the nearest, like really good, like Whole Foods grocery store store, natural grocers, whatever it is, and we'll spend the money to get really good quality meat because that's just what we want to do. It's not optimal. So we had really good quality meat. So we were just like, oh, this cannot go bad. It cannot go wrong. So we generally had like 
a few versions of meat, a few sauces, and then like a, a, a butternut squash. So we got into a really good rhythm where I was like, okay, where we get somewhere maybe around five or six for the evening where we're going to camp that night. Um, one of us gets this little foldable table and on the right side of the van, we get our little Coleman burner out. We start, uh, one of us starts, uh, you know, peeling the butternut, chopping it up, and then we fry the butternut in some ghee and then we put that aside. And then one of us, you know, usually me cooks the meat and then we kind of put it all together in this like uh, buttery uh, we usually get like some spices and throw it on there and it's That's so basic it's so, two ingredients it's super basic <laughs> it's super simple but you're so grateful for it because it's like it you know it's so hard cuz you don't have a lot of like surface area and we only have like this little tube full of water that we need to shower with wash our hands with and do the dishes and you're like okay like can we use as little instruments of washing because then we have to wash it in this little bowl at the end and then find a way of drying it out so we got a nice little workflow but then you find like man like dinner took us a really long time to make tonight and it was only two ingredients you know what i mean yeah. and so you become very specific with like it becomes like a little uh, tactical game of efficiency, you know, because you just don't have the luxury of running water and and endless gas and all this stuff. It's so fun, though. I miss it so much. But um, well, and then, you know, you're you're in the elements, too. So it's like there were some nights where we're like, you know, the water is freezing cold that we're trying to wash these like greasy dishes with. And it just is like impossible. And, yeah. Like, Or we're just out in the cold or there's a million mosquitoes and, you know, just yeah. just all of these different things. Or the but, wind is blowing and it won't let the, the fire heat up the pot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, we're so hungry. <laughs> but it was so good. You have such an appreciation for the whole process when it takes mm, that long, you yeah. know? It's so good. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's so interesting to, to hear you sound like kind of like wistful for that those moments of um although it sounds i mean like it sounds like you're eating sounds like you're eating well we sounds like you're eating good things so oh, yeah. um, that in of itself is is like half the battle there yeah Marin, i wanted to go back to this i wanted to go back to your experience of eating in sweden because so i'm 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 really interested um you know i I recently, you know, I, I did um, I did 23andMe a couple of years ago. And so just recently started um, learning a little bit about, like, where are my origins, which is harder for African-Americans mm-hmm. to find that stuff, just find that stuff out. And, you know, finding that most of my most of my DNA comes from Ghana and Nigeria and and really just kind of has kind of sent me on a on a voyage of kind of like what do they eat in Nigeria what do they eat in Ghana so so what talk to me about that experience of like feeling like you're at home eating food in Sweden like how what what was what was that experience like what 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 foods in particular like kind of brought that out for you well I mean first I have to preface it with we were really really lucky where we were at um we were doing a film project for the Savory Institute and so Hmm. we were at in this little village called Undershocker uh and uh on this farm called Fielbetta which is run by our friends um and so uh you know all of the food I was eating was from their garden and from the animals that they are there you know that they um they run sheep through this whole village so like on people's lawns and like through the ski slopes and like all of these different things it's like they they use the whole landscape to uh run these animals and so you know there was that part of like feeling like wow these animals are really connected to this land base like when i'm eating these animals and i'm eating this broccoli like i am eating the landscape or the same thing with the eggs and and so there was that piece where it was just like i was eating really really good food (laughs) um but uh uh, I, I I keep thinking about um, when we were in Stockholm, um, we went to this very, very uh, classic, traditional uh, Swedish restaurant, and they served us this, like, fermented mousse that was, or, mm. I mean, it was, like, um, lacto-fermented. Like lacto, like, kind of like prosciutto almost, yeah. but vermouth. Okay. And yeah. I was just like, holy shit, like, this is the most delicious piece of meat I've ever eaten in my life, and... I just had this like visceral sense of like, and then I think at that that same meal, I ate reindeer and I just had this visceral sense of like, these are the foods that my ancestors ate. Like, Mm. you know, in addition to uh, the dairy and the the cows and the the lambs and stuff like that. But, um, 
you know, just I just felt this sense of um, well, we we were on a hike one day uh, while we were there, and just you you lay down on this ground, and it's like you can't even see the ground because it's just covered in colors. Like you don't even know what it is. It's like all of these different mosses and berries just like cover the ground on this mountain, and I was just like laying there surrounded by berries and things that I could eat, things like just picking berries off the ground. Um, And I just had this sense of like, wow, this is where my ancestors came from. And it's, I didn't even know it until so, until just before we went. And and you know, that, that sense of belonging, I feel like it's um, in the United States. I think that a lot of people don't feel like they belong here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's really hard for a, a culture of people who need to feel like they belong here so as to not destroy the place, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I, I wish I could describe it better, but there was I just... think I remember you saying, like, on a cellular level, it feels like my whole, like, almost genetic heritage is, like, longing for this environment yeah. because that's what I'm, like, designed for. I remember you being like, I, I'm, it's, like, resonating with yeah. me. Yeah. Well, yeah, because my whole life, like, you know, uh, Utah um, is, like, a high desert uh, climate. And my whole life, it's just like my skin sucks, my hair sucks, like everything. It's like the dryness just like kills me. Like, mm-hmm. and you know, one would think that if I was born here, I would have like acclimated to it, right. <laughs> but I never have. Right. Uh, you know, and so once I sort of realized that, like, my, I'm mainly from like Scotland and Scandinavia, I just have been like longing for like this like cold, like humid climate with like, you know, the, the wildness associated with that. And, um, you know, the, the closest analogs, I would say, in the United States are like Montana and like Alaska. Um, but I, I just really long for that part of the world. <laughs> like I long to live there so badly. Um, but yeah, definitely like a cellular kind of experience of this is this is where my people came from. Jake, I'm wondering, have you had similar or or anything comparable in in like the experience of mexican food for you like when you've had either something your father made or something like very that's like very authentically well-made mexican food like have you had anything comparable to that experience oh yeah we we went in uh, maybe when i was like 19 or 18 uh, my father took me to mexico where he grew up in guadalajara which is the second biggest city in mexico we got to see where he grew up in all these places and you know he took us to some like real authentic he my dad loves street tacos that's like his he just loves street tacos and that was just like the bread and butter of his childhood you know just like local the lady on the corner making her own tacos and stuff and so we did a lot of that and just that like small scale from the local person type food it was like ah you know i really really enjoyed it so i enjoyed that because it made me understand my father a lot more and how my father sees food um so that was great but then i also i went to spain in my early 20s and I really resonated with their like siesta culture where it's like mm. halfway through the day, we're closing shop, we don't care. And we're gonna yeah. go eat food and wine, but it's not a lot of food. Like you order a little plate and you get like a bite of each thing, but each bite is like worth a whole plate of food. Cause it's like the best pork you can get, the best duck and the best glass of wine. And you just take a little bit of your whole thing and you just like, you enjoy in that like little moment of like, that was the, so good and you're just relaxing and then you're enjoying it it's those little things in life and so i really resonated with that as well you know that mediterranean luxurious just you know (laughs) yeah yeah yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah um we went to greece a couple years ago and uh the one the mediterranean is is just phenomenal but also similar kind of laid-back culture and then when we went to cuba the whole idea of like after lunch, everything shuts down. Like, I love that. Like, that, that should be universal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what are we What are we doing going back to work after lunch? Right. Um, so I, I want to be mindful of your time and the fact that I could probably talk to you guys forever. So we end our conversations with a question of what gives you hope? And not a hope that is um, ignoring the issues of the world, which you two obviously are not, um, but a hope that kind of gives you the energy you need, the conviction you need to get up and continue to do the kind of work that you're doing. So mm-hmm. what gives you two hope? Oh, that's a good question. Because I do, as somebody who rightly thinks we're in a lot of trouble, I do have a lot of hope, but it's not because I think we're going to turn this ship around at any point. I think my hope comes from the fact that 
life and life on earth isn't going anywhere. It's really the humans that are in trouble and that cultures do change. Sometimes it's when we're at rock bottom and sometimes it's willingly. And it gives me a lot of hope to think that especially the younger generations are so passionate. I think the younger generations don't really have quite yet a story to replace the new one. They're just angry at the old story, you know? And what gives me hope is that, I mean, and maybe I'm wrong about this, is that the, the real problem is a cultural epistemological problem we have on earth. And that if the young people are potentially open to that idea, if enough people beyond young people are open to the idea that it's not about, you know, standing in front of a bulldozer, it's not about all the solutions we're told about the ails of the world. It's that if we change who we are on the inside at a deep core level, and I've seen it happen in me and so many people, then you can really transform the world that is so wholesome and full and really tackles so many problems at once. That's what gives me hope is that is that we can build a world that gives everybody a better life. You know, that vision of as many people as possible having a really good quality of life gives me hope. I don't look for wealth. I don't want people to have fame. I just want people to be surrounded by a wonderful community that is tied in with the the forces of nature that's, that sustain them and that that will give so much, I think, just joy and comfort to so many people. I think that's what gives me hope and drives me. And I think that's a real potential. It might sound namby-pamby, but I think it's a real potential, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think what gives me hope is that actually we don't have to do anything to change human nature to change the world. Our view of ourselves has been obscured by this culture and our view of ourselves can be unobscured. Um, you know, a lot of people want to say that humans are just selfish destroyers, but, you know, that's ahistorical. That's actually just not true. Um, you know, we, we've been on Earth for, you know, depending on when you do the when you cut the line, either 300,000 years or 3 million. For the vast majority of that, we didn't destroy anything. We lived very much in harmony with our surroundings. Um, and it wasn't until this this one sort of cultural uh, movement began that we started to take over and deny death and control nature. And so we actually don't have to change human nature at all. Mm. Um, we just have to emphasize the parts of human nature that really allow us to be what I think is our birthright. I think our, 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 our like if, if every creature on earth has a role, humanity's role is through culture and technology to be stewards of this world. And a lot of people kind of bristle at that and they think that that's like human supremacist, but I don't think so at all. I think that that's just having an awareness of humanity's role within an ecology. And so, you know, that's, that's a really beautiful thing. We just have to we just have to take it upon ourselves to be responsible for fulfilling that role. And how that's going to look is going to be totally different for each person. Because the beautiful, the beautiful thing about that being our role is that the creation of culture and a culture that's actually going to be regenerative and persist through time requires a lot of different ideas and a lot of different hands on deck, a lot of different community aspects um, that would that, that create a culture. We can um, overemphasize our pro-social uh, attributes that come extremely naturally to us. Um, you know, the sort of fascistic, like tribalism that has sort of permeated the suburbification of the world, um, I think is actually very unnatural to us. I think we actually really hate it. And it, it makes us feel incredibly dislocated and disembodied. I mean, there's a reason why so many people kill themselves. And it's not because there's something wrong with them. It's because we've built a world that actually just doesn't really work for humans. And so I think that um, what gives me hope is that we can remember our birthright. We can remember why we're here. And yeah. why we're here is a good thing. Thank you for that as well. I, I totally agree. And that's a beautifully said. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So how can people connect with you two, connect with your work, um, stay in touch with all the things that you're doing? And um, yeah, go ahead and, and 
shamelessly self-promote. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find us on deathinthegarden.org. That's our website. We do have Instagram and Twitter accounts. The Instagram is Death in the Garden, one word. We have decided to begin moving away from social media and to other platforms because we feel like the model of social media has become very toxic in our own lives and in many ways toxic to society. But we do have content on there. Twitter, if you type in Death in the Garden, you'll find us. Um, on any platform where there is a podcast. If you type in Death in the Garden, you'll find our podcast. And then our favorite thing that we've started is our Substack because we've been writing these really long kind of essays when we release podcasts and have videos. So you'll find a lot of really great content and it's deathinthegarden.substack.com. Yes. Something like yeah. that. Um, I, I would say the best way to connect with us like at, on an individual level, though, is um, our Patreon community. We have a Discord that is really fun, and we're able to be a, a bit more active on that than with these other sort of media modes. Um, we are making a film, so uh, a lot of our energy is devoted to the writing the script and making the sizzle reel and editing the rough cut to, rough cut together. So um, we haven't been able to be as active on other platforms, but um, our Discord community is really has been really really fun um, and really enriching. Maybe Mainly because there's a lot of other cool people on it, like yourself. Um, <laughs> but um, and that would be uh, Patreon.com/slash/DeathInTheGarden. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure. It, yeah. Essentially, if you just type in "Death in the Garden," you'll probably find us. <laughs> yeah, and I will. I will echo that the Discord has been um, just a really fun place to hang out and just have some really deep conversations. And I appreciate your facilitation of that space. Jake Marin, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for Thank your you. time. Thank you so Thank much you. for all the work that you're doing. Um, would love to have you back when the documentary is done. And Absolutely. Would love to like do a deep dive in the documentary when it's finished. Um, uh, but thank you for your time and for the great stuff that you're doing. Likewise. Thank you, Derek, Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Tell. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.